I'm sorry for the technical difficulty. This is the third time I needed assistance from my children to get into some system. And uh, I like to say that it, that a man of my vision and leadership can't be bogged down by such trivial detail. <laughs> you like to say it so much, you just did. <laughs> I, believe, I, I actually believe it. Yeah, yeah. Size doesn't matter is always said by people who consider that size doesn't matter. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to The Selling Podcast. If you're really enjoying what we're talking about on the podcast, please take time to subscribe and share us with a friend. You can also look for us on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. We'd love to talk with you. Now let's get into this week's episode. For the next two weeks, we bring you something different on The Selling Podcast. Our interview was so good so long that unfortunately we had to break it up into two sections. So this week, you get section number one. And next week, you get section number two. On this week's episode of The Selling Podcast, we welcome two brothers with more than 50 years of experience between them working to build and grow teams in some of the best-known global organizations. You might recognize them from their podcasts. It's never just a game. We welcome NJ and Greg Pesci. All right, we're recording. With over 50 years and millions of worldwide traveled miles between the two of us, we have tasted defeat and relished in sweet, sweet victory. Looking for inspirational entertainment, motivation, and practical insights to drive your business? Welcome to the Selling Podcast. NJ and Greg Pesci. Good to be Guys, it's good to have you here. And in full disclosure, I think we should let everybody know that Greg is my brother-in-law, so I'm doing this both out of respect, admiration, and uh, I think I owe him something out of it. I'm not sure. Mike, Mike and his brothers have been carrying me since the day I married their sister. <laughs> uh, I'm just glad somebody took the bait. For all of our listeners out there, this is going to be a very unique episode. We are going to have a lot of fun. It's a very relaxed environment. You will pick up some very important pieces on sales and specifically working the room. So pay attention, but mainly sit back and relax because this is just going to be a lot of fun. NJ, sure. I know you spent a long career at PNG, uh, a long career at Scripps Network. Kind of bring in the listeners up to speed a little bit about what you've been up to lately. Sure. We did uh, the corporate world for about 30 years, and then um, we decided that it was time to do something we had planned on doing for a long time, but just didn't have uh, the courage to do it. So we decided to start our own consultancy about three years ago. And we spend time with um, a few anchor clients working on strategy, uh, organizational design and development, leadership development. And um, we help people kind of put those plans for the future together and accomplish what they want to do. We do some motivational speaking and we do some executive coaching. In fact, more executive coaching these days than we've done in the past. Excellent. And in fact, we may bring up the TED talk, but we may leave that for later in the discussion. Greg, and I know a little bit about what you've been up to, but you want to do the same? Yeah, sure. I, I've spent the last little, almost 20 years mostly in the financial institutions and payment space. Uh, I helped run a company here in Utah for a while, and then we um, sold it a few years ago and then stayed with the, the purchasing company, which was great for, for a couple of years, and then decided pretty much like NJ said, wanted to start doing something um, on my own, kind of want to do that for a long time. And so we're, we're doing that now, have a, a company called Sparrow and a product called MessagePay that we do in the, that helps banks get payments. And and on the side, we have a small little business, um, very creatively called Pesci Sports, uh, in which we build um, a game day app and CRM for, for sports. 
And I got to tell you that this is going to have huge shadows of uh, modesty hanging over it because you two are spectacular at what you do. <laughs> and there's no other way to present it. You guys are really phenomenal. And one of the things that I've always admired about both of you, kind of watching from afar, is your ability to network and work a room. And I think that's critical. What we talk about on this podcast is sales and how it applies to sales. So, Angie, I'll direct the question on your side. How do you see that networking and working room? How do you see that working into a sales environment? One of the loose definitions that, uh, that uh, at least I've covered over the years around power, it's the ability to generate relationships to get things done in a positive way, not to coerce people to do things. And so we learned early from our father that, you develop relationships of trust as, as fast as you possibly can. And it's easy to say that, um, but the best way we found over time is to be genuine and is to be transparent with people, to be honest with them about what the intent is from the beginning. So we don't spend time trying to figure out what hidden agenda is happening. And then when it comes to to working a room, we also learned a lot of that from from our father. And uh, when, when I spent some time at a public speaking class in college, they they videotaped us for this one session, and then I had to go into the lab and watch my video. And I thought, oh my goodness, I'm my dad. And I think everything he does is is so weird. <laughs> I, would, I would never do that. And I'm watching all these mannerisms. I'm realizing, yeah, I've learned all that from him. So being able to recognize that in a room, there are going to be a, a good number of people who are very interested in what you are saying. And then there is a, a large section that is just there. And then there are those who have no interest whatsoever. And I spent early time in my career trying to convince them to listen to what it was we were saying, realizing that I was losing those who actually want to hear the message. You don't, you don't discount them or dismiss them, but you make the eye contact with and you feel very positive about those people who support what it is you're saying and doing. You try to build that relationship so those who are on the fence join and those who are in the other room in their minds aren't that interested. So trying to convert them wasn't the best idea when at least when I was thinking about how you would work a room. And I've had the pleasure of meeting your father. And I, I really appreciate what you're saying, because your kids are going to mock you just like we mock our parents <laughs> and that it's going to happen. Uh, Greg, what do you think? What, what is the key? I've seen you work a room and you do it like a master. So what are your uh, thoughts? Well, I think, I think networking is really, um, I think, and I agree with what NJ said about trying to develop trust and um, and let people know that you're that you're genuine and and that you have genuine interest in them. It's not just about you, but that you have interest in them uh, and what's important to them and and what's important in their lives. And I think that that resonates with people. It's interesting as far as sales. You mentioned it in the context of sales. I'm doing a little research right now on people who have had some modicum of success in their business and then have decided that they want to go out on their own. And um, so in, in this research, I've been asking a bunch of questions, but I, I got to this point now, actually, after talking to both you, Mike and Scott, I started to ask people this question every time. How'd you get your first sale? How, how did you actually get that first sale when you came out? We could talk about how frightened you were to ask. Did you ask for money right away? All of that. But how did you actually get it? Who was it? And um, right now, I've done this with about 20 people. And so far... 15 of the 20, their first sale was either where they used to work or a relationship that they had where they used to work or a relationship that they had somewhere else in their life. Um, so 15 out of 20 is a pretty, is a pretty high percentage. And, and I think it shows how it's, it's, it's always smart to be a decent person, to treat people with respect and understand that those relationships can come back 
later in life. And for these people, they've, it's paid, it's paid dividends. And many times at a trade show, I have to psych myself up to talk to people. I need to get myself mentally in the state where I'm going to go out and network. Is that normal? Do you do that as well? Is that something where you just naturally are used to it by now and you're already in that space to have those genuine conversations? I have to do the same thing you do, Scott. So I, I am a professional extrovert, but I'm an introvert. And so it takes a lot of energy to do that, especially I would prefer right now, if you ask me, to go speak to 5,000 people about some subject you can give me in two minutes versus having lunch with two people I've never met. I'll, I'll take the 5,000 every time. <laughs> Interesting. Mm -hmm. so I, I, you know, you, you do have to psych yourself. I do have to psych myself up for that every single time because uh, it's not a natural thing for me to do. And, and as a professional extrovert, you, you have ways that you uh, figure out how to get comfortable in that space and be ready to talk about whatever it is. And, and I realize that a lot of it is like improv. So in those conversations, you look for the and whenever you possibly can to keep those conversations going with people, especially in the beginning when you don't really know much about them and if you have common interests. So that's what I do. I, I would agree with that. Um, I think for most people, it's just hard to talk, you know, to, especially going into a place where you don't know other people. It's always a little bit intimidating. Um, I do a little bit of, of self-talk when, when, in preparation for it. I try to figure out who's in the room, um, why I'm there, what they might be interested in. And then I tell myself, um, everybody else in this room, especially at, like at a conference, like you're saying, they're doing it. Is it really possible <laughs> that I can't? You know, I remember one time speaking with a, uh, working for a guy who, was making a, who had a very big company here in Utah, and he was running this nonprofit, which is a public-private partnership. And, and he had the governor there and all these people, and he, was, he seemed a little nervous. I actually wrote this, the speech for him, and he seemed a little nervous. And before he got up to do it, I told him that if he took his left hand and touched his, the left side of his nose, I would pull a fire alarm and clear the entire building. <laughs> and he just broke up and i said and after it was over he said to me i've done this a million times but first of all i couldn't stop laughing and second of all i knew i had an out <laughs> see that's bad because i'd be freaked out the whole time giving the talk do not touch my nose, do not touch my nose. Yeah. that's awesome i love look for the end to keep the conversation going I, NJ, I thought that was, I think that's just spot on. And Greg, I love, you mentioned earlier that you have kind of a go-to phrase to kind of kick things off. And I think that's also really good. Looking at their interest, what can you provide that's different? We had somebody recently who's a branding, personal brand expert, and she was talking about how we needed to focus in on them first rather than talking about ourselves. Too many times we start the conversation with, hey, I do this, I feel this. Let me tell you about myself. Nobody really cares. They want to talk about themselves. I, I think also it has to work for you. It has to be natural and it's not natural for every, for everyone. But we grew up in a, in a family where there were just a lot of people. <laughs> and so you, you kind of had to fight for your time to talk. And so you, you learned how to do that. And I do think if you're, if you have some skill with it, that there's a lot to be said about what humor can do to, to make people feel more comfortable about you. And understand that you're not this threatening person and that you're just a normal person. And we've worked on that, I think, pretty naturally for us and the family that we grew up in. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but it's worked well for us. I and mean, it's genuine. You just you, you, yeah. you can laugh. 
No, I'd add to what Greg is saying that um, we do that. And we, we also aren't afraid to talk about how vulnerable we are in certain areas. So we have conversations about where we're, we're just, just like people in the audience. And I, I, for a long time, I was afraid to fly. And we have conversations about fear and doubt in organizations. I don't mind telling the story about the weird stuff I would do to get on a plane and how I would have my ritual and weirdness. And if anyone saw me, I'd be taken off the plane for sure. <laughs> we tell people this, when we talk about it like that, people recognize they're just like me and they get nervous and afraid. And they're, you're open and, and able to talk about that vulnerability. It makes people in the room open to that as well. So, so how does sharing vulnerability not also demonstrate weakness? Oh, I think it's just a normal thing. So uh, it's, be, it's being open to the fact, it's being self-aware enough to recognize that this is happening and uh, I don't mind sharing it. If if um, I share that, maybe you'll be able to share yours and you won't feel like it's a weird thing. I don't know that I ever felt weak about it as much as I felt kind of weird about it. Like, uh, you know, I, I had to touch the plane kind of thing and tell people before I got on it to touch the plane. And one time I forgot to touch the plane and I thought, well, <laughs> I got to get up now and go touch the plane. <laughs> and if I tell one of the flight attendants, I got to touch the plane. You don't understand. I have to touch the plane. 150 people on this plane are counting on me touching the plane. <laughs> They're taking me off the plane. <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it could be seen as weakness, but it always felt like it was genuine and authentic. So I didn't feel bad about what people might have thought after I said it. I'm sure there's someone in the audience thinking, wow, why are you afraid to fly and have all the stats? But I, I don't mind sharing that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's actually pretty, in some ways, pretty paradoxical because it, um, I think real weakness is not being able to show that you have certain, that you have certain challenges because there's not a single person on this earth who doesn't have it. We all know it and that we do. And so, and if you, you're not so great, I mean, I married into Mike's fam Mike's family and every one of my brothers-in-law is like, is very handy, right? They can, they can fix things. They can talk things. I know two words, sprocket wrench. That's all I know. <laughs> and, and, and these guys can do all these things. My greatest pride in my life is how soft my hands are. They're supple. They're really nice. We're still editing all of that out. <laughs> yeah, you probably should. But the thing is, you, know, you, you go there and you realize there's just some things you can't do. Right. But I have a few things that I can do. And the fact that there are some things you can't do doesn't mean you don't have any skills. And I think people, I think it resonates with people when you're willing to say, hey, I've got limitations too. You probably do too. We, this is not a threatening environment. It opens up that humanity where we are all humans working towards a common goal. We all have some area where we're just not super good or we might have some challenges. And so I love that opening up, showing a little bit of vulnerability it always creates that reciprocation. People are always willing to share their own thoughts, some of their own experiences, and it creates a further bond just as, as humans that we can share. Really good point. So how did you develop that, Greg and, and Jay? It, I mean, this is a skill and you guys have developed it for years in your professional lives and you've both seen remarkable success, both with the companies you've at uh, and in your personal lives. How do you develop that as a skill that can then translate into sales, management, or whatever kind of endeavor that you, you're looking for? It would probably be um, trial and error at some, at some level. Um, and I think a lot of it had to do with uh, understanding at least who you think you are from the beginning and being genuine. I'll give you an example. 
on this one. Greg and I faced this a number of times while working at Procter and Gamble. It's it's a great place to be, and um, we worked in manufacturing, and it's kind of tough at times. And you're working stuff. You're working with union stewards, and you're trying to do things the best you can for the company. But you you get into it sometimes, and you have teams of people. You're working with between 18 and 36 people on these two teams, and we were told time and time again, you can't be liked by them. You can't have the technicians like you, or you can't lead them if they like you. And Greg and I aren't intending for them to like us. However, we will spend time talking with people about their lives in a genuine way where we got to know them and understand them, and they felt comfortable talking to us. And in the end, we liked most of them, and most of them liked us. And that irritated some of our managers to no end. And <laughs> our conclusion at the end was, is because nobody likes them. <laughs> Our results were as good as or better than anyone else's. And we were, as Greg mentioned, we use humor when we can, but we're basically who we are with them all the time. And when I was in a meeting with them and some some department manager came in and I laughed at something and this technician on the team said to me, Tim said to me, that was a phony laugh. You just laughed phony at his thing. And I realized these guys know me that well now. They know when I'm faking it. So that to me was very yeah, that I that I had been genuinely authentic with them from the beginning, that they recognized who I am. And and that's, I think, the key for us. Yeah, and I, I think I agree with that. I think that if your job causes you to, um, requires you to be somebody who you're not, and you think the only way you can be successful in your job is to be someone that you're not, you probably need to look for another job. And um, I mean, sometimes you got to do things you're not crazy about. I understand that. But if your job causes you, requires you to not be the human that you want to be, then you should probably, in my opinion, you should look for something else. And Jay, that's pretty typical these days, though, for, for leadership to say, don't become friends with those who you manage. I see that often. And when you're, ex- when you're doing some executive coaching, how do you handle that type of scenario? Yeah. So the intent never is to become, not, not like we're going to become friends all of a sudden. And it does happen with some people, but in, in the conversation, we, we depends on who we're talking to. At certain levels, it requires that you create a relationship with the individuals who are doing that work. There's an axiom that I believe holds true. Uh, it is that um, the higher you go in any organization, the less direct impact you have on anything. And so you're completely reliant on everybody who is working in that organization. If you're the CEO, it's everybody. And you can't obviously have the relationship with a, a line technician at the CEO level that you can if you're a team manager like, like Greg and I could. So our, our counsel is for them to listen, most especially. And if you can't have the interaction with, with individuals, don't promise them that you'll listen to them and do something about it because most people don't. Don't get in the conversation and open it up with, how would you like us to do the following thing? Horrible question. How would you, it's never going to be the same for anybody. So our advice to them is to get to know the people that, that can influence what happens next in the organization. Don't try to do things, some, something that's artificial because it doesn't work and recognize that not everyone's going to agree with or, or like what you have to say and be comfortable with that. That's some of the advice we give, but at least for us at the time, when working on the line, um, we had to interact with people who did everything and the fact that uh, we could talk to them in a way that most others couldn't. And that sounds a little bold, but it worked true. We, we, I'll just give you another side, if you don't mind, Greg, if I tell the story. But you wanna, we, we had a, a union steward that worked in Greg's shop who was tough. She was very tough. 
And the highest compliment she paid us was she came to see me and Greg and said, I'm concerned that management's doing something to this individual. But if the Pesci brothers tell me that's not the case, I'll believe it. And wow. that, that, that was a high compliment for us. Incredible. Yeah. She was great. She was. She wasn't as tough as she wanted you to think, though, she, Greg. She yeah, no, she was she she was great. But 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 when I first got there uh, on that team, uh, there were real problems and real animosities there, and and she was not a pushover and had a reputation of being very very tough. But she but she was fair, and it was a good experience for me. For okay, ex- ex- explain this because I'm afraid that many of our listeners won't understand exactly what type of individual this usually is because most of our most of our listeners probably have never worked on a factory floor before so explain this relationship because what you're explaining typically is not this way typically there's animosity between <laughs> between the floor and the union yeah well I, I mean we were in two different parts of the business NG and I were I was um, making the older product which was ivory soap and a bar soap, as a matter of fact, and NJ was making all the newfangled stuff, Olay, and what else were you making? Zest, white water zest. fresh zest. Yes, white water fresh zest. And so anyway, we were, um, you got to know, Scott, I, I really don't know how to fix anything, right? And this is a unbelievable, I mean, the, the, the stuff comes in a 240 degree liquid, right? And it comes okay. down a box. <laughs> the whole process happens right there. And I mean, and a guy like me, you know, I could get paper cuts. It's scary stuff. And so I, I was like, no. This is not a place where I really belong. And and they kind of sensed that to start. <laughs> it is the law of the jungle, but it was a unionized environment. Um, and we weren't and we were managers. And so um, you know, there were work rules about you're, you're not supposed to do certain things and other things while you're there because the union members are supposed to. Um, and when we set their schedule and some of these people were on shift, which is really hard for you as a person and for your family, it's really hard. Once we were forced to go on shift to work through this, you, you got a sense of how hard it really was. And so it was an environment um, that sometimes could be could be a little bit tough. And um, and we had the chance to to work with people there and to to gain their trust and 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 hopefully and the feel that they and we, we could trust them as well. And I, I thought it was uh, it was I'd never experienced anything like it. I mean, I had already, you know graduated from law school and was working in a law firm before I came there. And I was way out of my element, but, um, but I, I knew this much. I knew that I knew how to work on teams. I knew that I could lead people and I knew that I could show people that I actually cared about them, but we still had to hit our numbers, right? When it's time to, uh, to get the product out, it must happen. And so we worked hard to develop those relationships and, and overall it went pretty well. The normal relationship is supposed to start. It starts with that almost animosity between the two groups. It's set up that way. It's designed that way. And um, what you do then is you behave like you normally behave and it's incongruent for the other side. They have no idea what's happening in the beginning. They're wondering if actually you're trying to trick them. And then, Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> then like, And over time they realize, no, this is the way we see them every single time. Because in the end, we're working for the same company, hoping for the same thing. And um, we, it was time. We, we also believe this phrase, that time is the great equalizer. So you just can't hide it for time. You can't fake it over time. Eventually, it, time catches up to you and you are who you are. And they can see right through that. So in the beginning, they thought we were, we were faking it. And then 
And by the way, we're not the great, like the greatest managers in the history of the world. We're like, you know, maybe the second or third greatest, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not quite. But, but that was, again, we would not have survived because I don't know anything either from a technical standpoint. We couldn't do anything. We only survived and thrived in that environment because we surrendered ourselves to those who understood it and knew it. And they were shocked by that. That was uh, not the norm. I actually think we had one advantage, Lisa, for me. You're a little more technical than I am, AJ. I had nothing else. So in some ways, in some way, I had to just rely on what I did have, which was the ability, I thought, to create relationships and to show people that I, that I, um, that I was going to work hard, that I was going to be fair to them, because I had nothing else to offer. And, and in some ways, that actually helped me, as, as weird as that sounds. So how does this translate then into sales? And I keep hunting back to that, but you sold yourself to the union steward, to the entire floor. You had to overcome that uh, suspicion because we all have suspicions when a sales rep calls on you, right? We all, mm -hmm. we all know that we know you're going to try and sell something. How do you create that trust and that level of communication where you can share this without uh, fear of stepping on their toes? I, I know, Mike, I, I'm not sure that I'm like the absolute specialist on this, but um, wait, no, you're on the selling podcast. You yeah, are the you, specialist. I, you are. I know you guys are though. You've but, been promoted. But, all right. But I will say, <laughs> I will say this, that it's, um, look, you talk, you talk to my sister into marrying you. That's a yes, pretty good sales. Uh, We're all was, married. Yes. Out of our league, but so. The bigger, the bigger thing is that next month is 32 years. So that's the nice. better, that's, that's uh, long-term sales. But the, I think that, um, for me, at least, I think when you're going to sell someone, I think you got to be honest about what, what, what you're doing. Right. You got to look at and say, yeah, I'm here. People know you're there to sell something. Right. But if you can honestly say um, that you're interested in understanding their needs, looking for solutions that actually meet their needs, you're not just trying to cram them into something that 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 works for you and that you even have the ability sometimes to say, you know what, this doesn't this doesn't work. This isn't a perfect match right now. And, and because then someone can trust you because you might have another opportunity to sell them in the future. But if you can come to someone and be honest about what you're doing, you're selling. And they know that. And they're talking to you about that. Understand what their needs are. Try to find ways that you can bring solutions to, to that. And in those instances where you really honestly feel you can't be big enough to say that for now, because you can come back another day. And this is where we will end this week's episode of The Selling Podcast. We will pick up with part number two of this interview next week. Trust me, it's good, and you won't want to miss how it concludes. Rocky.